So we're going to read um, from verse 13 to 35. The title of this is Paul and Barnabas at Antioch in Pisidia. Now Paul and his companions set sail for Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on to Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and, motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great, during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Cana, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, whom will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus. As he promised, Before his coming, God had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, son of the family of Abraham, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, To us have been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they do not recognize him or understand the utterance of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfill them by condemning him. And they brought, and they they thought they found him, and they thought they found in him no guilt worthy of death. They asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in the tomb. But God raised him up from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus as it also was written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy, sure blessings of David. Therefore, they say, therefore he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. This is the living word of God. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for your word uh, that is set before us for this testimony from Paul. Lord, the words that he chose were given by you, inspired by you, and useful for us, for our growth, for our encouragement, for our stability, and for our perseverance in the faith. So, Lord, I pray now that you would um, allow me to choose my words carefully and to speak carefully and in, in a way that is truthful to your word. So speak now, Lord, for we are listening, and we ask that you would raise, uh, raise our affections for you and raise our, our hearts to adore Jesus Christ um, for who he is and what he's done. We ask this and thank you together in the name of Christ. Amen. Tim, once again, can I just get a bit more light down on here? I am just kind of old school with my notes. I do need them. So we're going to hit the ground a little bit running this morning. I'm not going to do that full section that Kevin just read, but I did want to, you to see the trajectory of where Paul is going in this sermon. He's in a synagogue, okay? And this is Saul, who is now known as Paul. It's the same name, just in two different languages. And um, he's ministering right now primarily to the Jews. And so he's in a synagogue, which is the Jewish place of worship. It's not the temple, in Jerusalem, but it would be sort of like a Jewish church, and it's where the scriptures would be read. Now, they're there, and this is a common thing for Paul. As he, as, he, as he goes to a new town, he usually lands at the synagogue. Why? Because he knows people will be there, and he knows they'll be talking about God, and the scriptures are going to be there. So all the ingredients for a good church planting endeavor are there, and Paul is ready, and, and Paul is not only willing, but Paul has been used by God and set apart by God for this mission, right? We, we saw that a couple weeks ago, that he was set apart by the Holy Spirit and sent out by the church. Now, Paul was not just an average guy. As I said, we're hitting the ground running, so I hope your pen is ready, and uh, we're not doing too much in terms of um, pleasantries this morning. So Paul was not only willing and sent by God, but he was actually highly capable. He was schooled in the Jewish faith. He was one of the uh, young rising stars in the Jewish authority, in Jewish leadership, he was zealous for the law of God to the point where he would persecute Christians. And he was well-schooled in both the history, the scriptures, and the logic of the Jewish faith. And so when he would come as a converted Christian to Jews, there was nobody more able and apt to speak to these folks that were, are still a part of this system that has not yet embraced Jesus Christ, and he would show them the way of God's salvation to a more completeness that they didn't have merely in the Old Testament scriptures. Now, that's important. Kevin read for us that the scriptures, the law and the prophet were being, the prophets were being read in the synagogue on the Sabbath. This is according to Jewish, the Jewish faith. The, the, the people would gather together on the Sabbath for worship, and they would read from the law and the prophets. Now, it's nice because we have that book. We have the Law and the Prophets. That's, that's the first section of your Bible. That's the Older Testament, the Older Word. We have access to those documents. We, we know what they were reading. We know what they were studying. They've been preserved for us by God. And so when the leaders read out the Law and the Prophets, there's a common practice. And actually, we see in the book of Luke, where, remember where Jesus, the, the Law is read? It was the Prophets, actually. It was Isaiah. It was read out, and Jesus stands up, and he says, Today in your hearing, this scripture is fulfilled. In other words, I am the one that this scripture is speaking of. And so there's this practice in the synagogues 
for rabbis or leaders to stand up and give encouragement to the people from the text. Okay, there's a, you can see sort of a pattern that we follow in the New Testament church. This is part of how God deals with his people. And it's amazing because they, they read it, and then they send a message to these traveling missionaries, these traveling Jews, Paul and Barnabas, and they say, hey, do you have a word of encouragement for us? If you have anything encouraging to say, then come and speak up. And that's kind of really neat because this phrase encouragement, this word of encouragement actually literally means come to our aid. In other words, come and help us. Will you come and bring us a message that will help us in the word of God? And I just, I, I think that's sort of a neat posture for the church to be in. And I wonder if that's sometimes how you feel where you're just kind of crawling in here and you're saying, does somebody have a word for me? Does somebody have a word just to, to help me come to my aid? And I want to assure you, and as Kevin pointed out, that that help comes from heaven. That help comes from God, and it comes through the scriptures. It comes through the, the living word as revealed in the written word to us. That the scriptures are the foundation, and they are the, they're the totality of how we access who God is. Now, God lives in, in us in his spirit, absolutely, but but there is a knowledge and there is a richness that comes from understanding his word. And so... Come and help us. Will you come to our aid? The leaders say, and Paul does not miss an opportunity. As any good preacher, he's always got a sermon in his back pocket, and he's ready to go when he's asked. And he motions with his hand, and he says, Listen, listen, men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. And that is the call of the word of God. It's the call of the preacher, that you who fear God, you who are searching for God, you who are sons of Abraham, you are sons of the faith, now listen. Turn your ear and listen. For Paul is not saying, oh, who am I? Who am I to explain the scriptures? Who am I to speak of the things of God? Who am I? Oh, I'm just, I'm a sinner like you. No, there's no lack of humility here, but there is a boldness and a confidence to take God's word and to apply it to God's people for their good. It's just an ordinary group of Jews meeting together to worship. And they're not just Jews. He says, men of Israel and those who fear God. This is to acknowledge that there are some there who fear God and love him, but are not from any of the tribes of Israel. They are not born of Jewish blood. They may be Greeks. They may be Romans. They may be travelers, um, Arabs of some other type. And this message is for all of them. It's for any who will listen and we're going to see later on as well that, that God makes no distinction in terms of the outreach of his salvation. He makes no distinction in terms of your heritage or your background. Now, one of the things just context-wise I want to point your attention to because we're going to see this later on is that John Mark has left them. We saw that John was with them, right, during the last encounter, during the last uh, part of the missionary journey. John Mark had started it with them. And then it says that he departed. This is part of the context at the beginning. John had departed from them. And we wonder, well, why was that? You know, did, was his mortgage up for renewal? He had to go back to the bank. Like, why did he leave? Paul would later interpret this for us in the way he saw it. He saw it that John Mark abandoned them, deserted. And uh, that's, a, that's a tough reality if you're a traveling missionary. I think that's and again, I'm not making commentary and linking that to our announcement this morning, but there's a sense in when people depart from the ministry with you, it's just, 
It's devastating. And I'm not addressing motives or anything here like that. But for Paul, when one of his companions left him, it was just heartbreaking. And actually, he would later prohibit John Mark from joining him on his next journey. So there was even a cost to John Mark for not enduring this initial, this initial missionary journey. And that's the reality is that serving God is hard. And it's not only hard if you're a traveling apostle. It's hard to be faithful. It's hard to partner with a church and to get serious about ministry and to wrap your life around the mission of God. It's hard. And there will be those who just say, this is not for me. I'm done. And they're going to go away. And it's not commended in Scripture. And, 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 and there's a cost for them. There's a cost for them. They want to rejoin. And now the good news is way later on, Paul does say, Bring John Mark for he's useful to me. There's a growth there and there's a reconciliation and praise God. I want to put that out there. Um, but certainly in these initial seasons of the apostolic ministry, there's challenges. It's not going all smooth all the time, right? And that's okay. So I want to look at the encouragement that Paul brings. What is encouraging about this text? What is the help that he brings the people? There's just three ways that he points out and we're going to stop at verse 26. The title of my message is unworthy but encouraged. Um, I, I would hope that you don't think that when you come to church, if you're going to walk away encouraged and strengthened by God, that you have to come in here worthy of it. You have to polish yourself up and get yourself ready to receive God's blessings of encouragement. The whole message from 13 to 26 is the unworthiness of God's people. And this is how Paul begins his word of encouragement. They say, come to our aid. Give us a word of encouragement. And Paul says, great, let me start by telling you how unworthy God's people are. And this is the bedrock of our comfort, and I'm going to show you how. Number one, your comfort. Your comfort is in God's election to save you, not in your choosing of him. And, and I'm sort of weaving our, our new covenant application in with the historic reality, and, and I hope you can see the distinctions and the relevance therein. But how does he begin? Men of Israel and those who fear God. The God of this people, this people Israel, not just this people in general, at large, the world, this people Israel. God chose our fathers and made them the people, those people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. Your comfort is not in your choosing of God, but God's choosing of you. Now, how do we jump to such a, such a statement right away? How can we get to such a bold proclamation right away? Well, it, it, it's in the text that the rise and the even the creation, the existence of this people is owed to God. Israel was not just this big clump of people and God said, I kind of like you. I like where you're living. I like what you're doing. I like your customs. I'm going to choose you. It says that he chose our fathers. Now, who are our fathers? What's, who's Paul talking about when he says our fathers? He's talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those are the fathers of, of Israel. And Abraham is sort of the key figure there. If you go back to Genesis chapter 12, and you don't have to go there, but right after God scatters the people um, at the Tower of Babel, he scatters them, and he gives them confused language, and God curses them, 
in their rebellion against God, in the very next chapter, after God has initially sort of created the division of nations through language, in the very next chapter, he meets a guy named Abram in the land of Uz. And it says that he called that man. He appeared to that man and he, man, and he said, leave your kinsmen, leave your people, and go to a land that I will show, show you. God did not go choose a nation. He went and he chose a man. He chose the, the father Abraham. And you know what's amazing? He says, go to the land that I will show you, and in you I will bless all the nations of the earth. So in the chapter after he curses and creates the division of nations, in the next chapter he says, through you I will bless those nations. I will bless those nations. This is the election of God. It is God choosing a person, and then it says that he made them great in the land of Egypt. Now, the story goes, Abraham had sons and there, a famine came across the land and they grew into this small family and they had these, there was these 12 brothers and one of them's names was, uh, was Joseph and they were jealous of Joseph and they sold him into slavery and he went down into Egypt and then a famine arose in the land and then the family traveled to Egypt to get food because Joseph was there saving up food. So God protected this family through this event. Then the family stayed in Egypt because they were well favored. The Pharaoh of Egypt had great favor for this family. Now they grew and they multiplied and they stayed there for generations. And the next Pharaoh or Pharaohs thereafter started not to trust this family because they had gotten very large very powerful, and they ended up enslaving these people in a land that they were once friendly to. And so this is all, Paul covers this swooping story in this little phrase, he made them great in Egypt, and then with outstretched arm, he led them out. But here's the amazing part. They were not just living in a foreign land in Egypt. They were enslaved there. Okay, they were enslaved. They were put to hard labor. Um, they, they had lost all contact with their religious traditions, with, with who God was. They, 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 they were people on their own, enslaved by a powerful nation, totally at the mercy of the world. And then it says that God, with uplifted arm, led them out. So because of God's choosing, because he had chosen Abraham and this family, and to keep a promise to Abraham... He led them out. Now, again, he just, he led them out with uplifted arm. I mean, you're talking about the 10 plagues that devastated Egypt. You're talking about the parting of the Red Sea and Israel walking through and, and being safe. When they thought they were cornered, when they came to the Red Sea and they thought, oh, now we're just going to die in the wilderness instead of dying in Egypt. Thanks, Moses. And it's not over. That's not where the story ends. The sea then parts. And God, I mean, this is an unspeakable miracle. We're talking probably some estimates put the people in the million persons range. You're talking about a million people crossing a parted sea and then the sea closing in on Egypt as they pursued and destroying the Egyptian army. With uplifted arm is a very short way of saying God moved heaven and earth to save these people from slavery. And then what's their relationship like in the wilderness? This is the point of this part. What's their relationship like in the wilderness? Did the people just say, we're free. This God is so great. He is so trustworthy. He is so mighty. Let us submit ourselves. How does, how does Paul describe the relationship? For about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. What? What do you mean he put up with them? 
Paul's first words of comfort to those people in the synagogue were that God put up with our, with our forefathers. He put up with us. He describes the unworthiness of Israel. What is unworthy about this response? It's that when somebody moves heaven and earth to save you, and your response is to grumble, to worship idols, to complain, to look back with regret at your salvation, that's an unworthy person. That is unworthy. Have you ever done something nice for your kids and all it creates is fighting? Like, why did I take you guys for ice cream? You were happy before and now you're fighting over you didn't get enough. That's humanity. That's us. We are unworthy of kindness. The first word of comfort to God's people is that they are fundamentally unworthy. But here's where the comfort comes in. God remained with them. He didn't abandon them in the wilderness. He didn't leave them there to starve or die. He gave them water from a rock. He gave them manna from heaven. There's a sense that God just, he just walked with them. He led them by a, a pillar of cloud by the day and a pillar of fire by night. He was with them. He did not abandon them, no matter how unworthy and wickedly they responded to his kindness. You might, you might forgive them if they didn't know who God was or if this was just their natural behavior, but they had seen God's hand move in the most fantastic, phenomenal way, and they responded with utter unworthiness. The scriptures actually teach us that he didn't even do it for their sake. God stayed with them for his own sake. We're going to cover a couple of those scriptures later on. But God said, I remained with you so that the other nations would not blaspheme my name. Because the other nations heard the news that Israel was saved by, the, by Jehovah, by Yahweh. And now if they die in the wilderness, the other nations are going to think that I was not able to save them. So God, for his own glory, because he promised to them salvation, he stays with them. Your comfort is not in your worthiness or, or your ability to cling to and choose God. It's because God saved you and has chosen you. That's how you are comforted. I don't know. I, and friends, this is, it's called election. It's a doctrine that, that we know by the phrase election. And, and I, don't, I, I don't run after the big doctrinal themes if I don't have to. But the, friends... Election is the undercurrent of, of, us, of assurance for the Christian. Election is the bedrock. It's the foundation of your perseverance. It is, the, it is the, the driving theme of why you are a Christian and not an atheist. It's because God chose you to reveal himself in Jesus Christ to you. And when God chooses you, he does not unchoose you. He does not forget you. He does not abandon you. That's the story of the Old Testament. Why are we looking in the Old Testament for encouragement? That's why. Because in the miracles and the salvation of Israel, we see a God at work in the real world who stands by himself and, and glorifies his name by saving his people. Ephesians 1, 4 just says this in such simple, stark terms. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him, when? 
Did he choose you after you made a profession of faith? When did he choose you? He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Your comfort is that if you know the living, the living God and you've placed your trust and your faith in him, it's because God chose you before there was ever a river running through Egypt. Before there was ever a star in the sky, God had chosen you, not in some generic way to be one of his children, but to be holy and blameless. He chose you to purify you and make you his own. And your assurance does not rest on your ability to do those things. Again, the driving theme here is unworthiness. You are unworthy. That's how you know God is faithful. Because he does not discard us when we become unworthy or when we respond in foolish ways or when we are unable to live as we think we ought. Now, some might counter, and I just want to address this. Some say, oh, Tim, in Egypt, God makes note that he heard their cries for help and he listened and he responded. So no, no, no. the people wanted salvation and so God chose to save them. True, but, but who was the God they were crying out to? How did they know who that God was? How did they have any sense that he would respond? It's because God chose their forefathers. The fact that they knew who to call on was a sign and a signal and proof of election. What was Abraham doing out in Uz before God called him? Was he like pouring through the scriptures, you know, like going through the gospel of John, hoping to figure out who God was? No, he was ignorant of who God was. And in their ignorance, God chose them and made them a people. And so God comforts us in the reality that he chose us. He, he chose to save us and he chose to make us a people. That's number one. Number two, your comfort is in that God has established you when you would have either died or fallen away. And we're sort of, again, we're, we're running the parallel tracks of the historic significance and the new covenant application to us. Your comfort is in that God established you when you would have fallen away. In other words, he secured you. He didn't just save you to leave you flapping in the wind. He saved you to establish you and give you security and, and make you, make us a people. Listen to this. After 40 years, he put up with them, with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. What was the promise to Abraham? Go to a land that I will show you and that I will give to you. And in you, I will bless the nations of the world. And so even when they were led out into the wilderness and they were eating manna, which they sort of thought was a lousy food, they were sort of comparing it with the leeks and garlic of Egypt. And they were saying, how can God love us when we're eating this crummy food? But ahead of them, ahead of them, was the plans that God had to clear out the nations to move them out of the way so that Israel could come and take the land of Canaan. We're told in the scriptures that it was a land flowing with what? Milk and honey. That's not that there were, it's not necessarily there's honey dripping out of trees or cows just, you know, their milk going. That, that was a sign of prosperity and a sign of provision and a sign of security. Now, now here's the reality too. He didn't just say, I'm going to show you to a really nice land and I'll give you a great rate. Like I'll get you a great rental rate. 
He didn't just say, when you get there, I'll give you a super great lease on the land. He gave them the land. Now, some of you in real estate or, or homeowners versus renting, you understand the significance of ownership, right? There's a, there, some of you have had to move because uh, the, the owner has sold the building and has chosen to do something new with it. Oh, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kick, kick out the three tenants and I'm going to turn it back into a single family uh, unit. You are, at, you are at the whim, you are at the mercy of that landlord, that owner. But what did God say to Israel? This is your land and I'm going to clear out, in fact, he says seven nations. Who are those seven nations? And I, I have them just in my notes on my phone here. The Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, and the Girgashites. Um, you've never heard of most of these nations, or if you have, you wonder, you know, are they just sort of like, they're, they're just nobodies, right? No, no. These are serious nations who had a serious stake in their land. How often do you hear about a war where one army comes in and says, hey, you know, we'd like to just take over this land. And the other people are like, I think that's a good idea. Let's just spare ourselves the fight and we'll just move on. No, these are bloody battles fought for territory. And God gives victory to Israel every single time. He clears out these seven nations from this land and he lets them settle there. So what does God do with this unworthy people? He gives them land. He gives them the inheritance that he, they, that he promised their father Abraham. He establishes him there. And he doesn't just establish them in this beautiful, um, rich, prosperous land. It says that after about 450 years, now that's about the time of the captivity in, or the enslavement in Egypt from the time where they went down to Egypt all the way to when they took the promised land, the land of Canaan. That was about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. This is, Paul's just retelling the story to encourage them, to lead them somewhere. Now, what's the significance of the judges? He gives them land, and then he gives them rulers. No people, no land is blessed without godly leadership. Without a leader saying, this is right, this is wrong, I will protect you from evil and I will lead you to God. No land is blessed without godly, God-fearing leadership. And God provides that in them. He gives them the judges. Now, the judges fail. The theme of unworthiness is just painted all through this scripture. The judges fail to do what God had asked them to do, which was to lead the people and to protect them. Judges 2.16 says that God gave them judges who saved them from those who plundered them. So there was this sense of protection. You know, if you want to take down a pack, you take down the lead dog. And so God gave Israel judges as the lead, as the one who was giving direction, who was giving protection to protect them. He didn't just say, now go welcome to the land. It's every man for himself. God gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Now, Let's just back up for a minute and, and look at these two events that Paul has so far chosen to highlight. And I want to read a scripture for you. And you can go there if you like. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 26. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy is right near the beginning of your Bible. It's part of the first five books of the Bible. It's part of the Pentateuch. These two events, leaving Israel, or sorry, leaving Egypt miraculously from slavery and receiving the promised land, these comprise the two key events, the two key actions of God that were 
to be part of the praises of Israel. I want to read this to you in Deuteronomy 26, 5 through 10. This is God telling the priest what to sing, what to pray when they are worshiping God. And you shall make response. In other words, this is what you shall say to the Lord your God. A wandering Aramean was my father, and he went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number, and there he became a nation, a mighty, great, and populous nation. And the Egyptians treated us harshly, harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor. Then we cried to the Lord and the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. We sang that this morning. With great deeds of terror and signs and wonders, and he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given me. So what's the, what's the whole point there? This, the, the first fruits offering from God's people were to acknowledge that God not only saved them, but gave them everything that they had, gave them security. So these actions of God comprised the worship of God's people. He saved them and he established them. Your comfort is in that God chose to save you and established you despite your unworthiness. Gave you everything that you have. And so this offering of first fruits in Deuteronomy is a recognition of that. But what happens? God establishes them. He brings them into the land. He clears out their enemies. He gives them judges. And he raises up a prophet named Samuel. Samuel is kind of like the spiritual advisor to the judges. They kind of work together. But then something else happens. They've seen salvation, they've seen victory in battle, and they've come to the promised land. And God made them, not only did God make them a people who were free, but he made them a nation by giving them borders. You want to talk about the importance of borders, it's the reality that you are not a nation if you do not have borders. And so to fulfill God's promise to Abraham, he made them a nation, he gave them land, and he gave them judges to protect them and to rescue them from those who would plunder them. Now this is what they said. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, how do the people respond to all that God had done? The two things that God told them to worship for, this is what they say. Now appoint to us a king to judge us like the other nations. So God has made them in every way distinct and blessed in him. And their response is to say, we want to look like the other nations. Give us a king. Give us somebody mighty to deal with us. These judges, these weak judges, give us, give us a sovereign. Give us a powerful king like the other nations. And Samuel is discouraged. Samuel's like, why are they doing this, God? Why are they rejecting us? And this is what God says to Samuel. They have not rejected you. They have rejected me. How sobering. How sobering for this people that have been given everything. They have rejected me according to all the deeds that, that they have done. And God remembers. God remembers what happened. From the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so that they are also doing this to you now. So then, obey their voice and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. That's First Samuel chapter 8. God has not forgotten any of that. He says, from the day that I brought them out of Egypt, they rejected 
me. They have never turned to me in faith and been obedient. They have never been a righteous or worthy people of my love, says God. So he says, you know what? This is their choice. Give them the king. And so Paul mentions that uh, they got a king. What happens with the king? Then they asked for a king and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish. Saul was tall. Saul was handsome. He was powerful. The tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was known for their fierceness, for their vitality, for their strength. This is the kind of king that Israel wanted. Give us somebody tough and tall and handsome and who we don't have to be embarrassed of. And then God says to Samuel, show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Saul ended up abandoning the Lord. He hated God's redemptive plan. He hated God's chosen servant, David. Saul was not willing to get on God's agenda. He was not willing to lead the people of Israel to God. And he was an unworthy king. He was the king that they'd asked for and the king that they got. Friends, this is another doctrine that we need to highlight. This is called depravity. We have election, and we have hand-in-hand with that depravity. Why? Because when God gives us everything, every possible reason to worship him, Romans chapter 1 says that that what what can be known of God can be seen in nature, his eternal attributes. Even our consciences, our world tells us who God is, but... Romans 1 says, we have exchanged the knowledge of God for unnatural desire. We have exchanged God for sin. These people, Israel, have seen the works of God. They have seen salvation. They have been given the law. They have been given judges. They've been given a land and security. And what do they do? They reject God as their king. They say, we don't want it. We don't want this, this God who's been in heaven. We want a king that we can see, the king that we can look at. This is called depravity because despite the display of power and faithfulness of God, they reject him. And what's the, what's the outflow of that? What does that tell us about that? That doesn't tell us that they chose a certain way and that they had before them, they had all the information and they made the choice to reject God. It tells us in our scriptures that they were unable to follow God. They were unable to worship God, not only in terms of judgment and and. and what they deserve for that, but for their own good. God said when he gave the law, if you obey my law, I will give you plenty. I will protect you from your enemies. I will give you a good harvest. I will bless your children, your families, if you obey me. It's for your good that you obey and follow the living God. And he says, if you disobey me, you will be cursed. Your land will not yield to you its fruit. You'll have trouble in your families and in childbirth. You'll be cursed by me. You'll be scattered by your enemies. You will lose everything I gave you. He puts before them the choice. And they have all the information in front of them. And the people in that moment even say, we will follow you, Lord. We will choose obedience. We will choose righteousness. And they don't. And they don't because they can't. They can't. That notion is called the depravity of the human being. We are depraved. We are unable to follow God. We are unable to go where he commands us to go. I want to read just briefly in Ezekiel. I know I'm jumping around a lot in the Old Testament, but this is just, it so saturates our minds with this idea of where we find our comfort. If you are looking to yourself for comfort, you will look forever 
You'll never find it because we are unworthy. We derive no comfort from looking at ourselves and how we respond to God. Ezekiel 20, verse, starting at verse 9, and I'll just go for a couple lines here. Ezekiel 20, verse 9 says, But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they live. That was that idea, right? That God protects the honor of his own name. In whose sight I made myself known to them in bringing them out of the land of Egypt. So I led them out of the lands of Egypt and I brought them into the wilderness. I gave them my statutes and made known to them my rules, which, by which, if a person does them, he shall live. Seems pretty simple, right? God gave the rules. If you do them, you live. What's so hard about that? Moreover, I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them, who makes them holy, who makes them distinct among the nations. Verse 13, but the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes, but rejected my rules, which if a person does them shall live. And my Sabbath, they greatly profaned. Then I would pour out my wrath upon them in the wilderness and make a full end of them. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whose sight I had brought them out. Moreover, I swore to them in the wilderness that I would not bring them into the land that I had given them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands, because they rejected my rules and did not walk in my statutes and profaned my Sabbaths. For their heart went after idols, in other words, they made false gods instead of worshiping God. They didn't just not follow God. They made false gods to worship because they rejected my rules and did not walk in my statutes. Nevertheless, my eyes spared them and I did not destroy them or make a full end of them in the wilderness. Now, what is God saying here? He's saying that over and over, I gave them everything. I established myself among them. I gave them their... The rule, I gave them my character, I gave them my law, I gave them leadership, I gave them a land, and yet they hated me. They hated me. That's depravity, my friends. That's every single solitary one of us had God not acted on our behalf. Each and every one of us are no different than Israel. No different. Isn't it so easy to read your Old Testament Bible and think, man, these people. Why did God choose the most stubborn of all people on the planet Earth? They're all of us. We are all just like that. We are all unable to follow God no matter how much he does for us. When we should have fallen in the wilderness and Israel should have died in the wilderness, God just said it. I saved them. I brought them out. I should have left them there to die because they rejected me. They started worshiping false gods. They did everything wicked. They were looking back on sin. They were looking back on slavery with regret instead of looking forward to the hope that God had promised them. Folks, this is unworthiness. They are so unworthy. These people are so unworthy of God's salvation. So this is Paul comforting the people in the synagogue. Unworthy, unworthy, unworthy. Unworthy kings, unworthy judges, unworthy peoples, unworthy rulers. Did you know that even Moses died before he entered the promised land because of sin? Did you know that? The great Moses who led them out of Egypt by faith died in the wilderness because of sin. Unworthy, the whole lot of them, everybody, unworthy. So where does our comfort come from? Number three, our comfort comes because God has given us a true king. 
So they've fully rejected God, yet he remains with them. He works in their midst and on their behalf. And what happens? It says that God removed Saul, right? Saul, God says to Saul, I will not establish my kingdom with you. Jonathan, his son, will not be king, but David, Jonathan's best friend, will be king. Now, David was a guy that everybody else would have rejected. He was the youngest of, of the sons of Jesse. He was a shepherd in the field. And when Jesse was bringing out all the boys to find out who would be king, he was like, here's my strongest. Here's my tallest. Here's my best looking. Here they are. And it was like, nope, it's none of these. Are there any others? And there's like, well, there's one more. He's a shepherd. His name's David. Bring him out. This one will be king. The one that everybody else would reject. Now, why was David chosen as king? Paul tells us. I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. I have found in David a man who will do my will. This is God's blessing for his people because why? He was a king. The reality is that the king that Israel anointed rejected God, led them away from God, led them in unfaithfulness, but the God that, sorry, the king that God raised up would lead them to God. Here's the, here's the reality. We as people need a federal head. We need somebody taking us where we cannot go. We need a king. We have a super individualistic culture um, that sort of really believes in, the, in the, um, the power of reason and rationality and information. And if we just do a little or love a little or give a little bit of information, people can just make the best choice. And they'll, they'll follow God if you just present it right. Not true. We need a king who will lead us to God because we will never go on our own. We cannot go on our own. We're depraved. We're unable to choose God. And so God gives Israel a king. Now, you want to talk about unworthiness? David blew it too. He really blew it bad. A lot of our Bibles talk about the sin of David and Bathsheba and the adultery and the murder and the regret and the, and the deceit. Oh, even David blew it, a man after God's own heart. But to David came a promise of this man's, verse, verse 23 in your Bibles, in Acts chapter 13, don't, don't lose that spot, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior. It's about time we get to some good news in the story, right? He has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus his name is Jesus, as he promised. So, what's the big picture here? He takes the display of saving one million Jews out of slavery, destroying seven major nations so that they would be secure in the land, and then proving that their king David, the dynasty that God promised him, was fulfilled in Jesus, taking this all together, Here's the reality. Proof that, and this is what we're going to go to in the next couple of weeks. Proof that Jesus is from David is, is the proof that Jesus is our salvation. That he is from God, sent to save you and me. When you take the saving of the Jews, the establishment in the nation, and the king that God gave them over them, David, the promise that God made to David, this is in um, 2 Samuel 7, nine, verse 9 to 16. I'm not going to read that, but God specifically says to David, I will establish your throne forever. I will give you a royal dynasty that will never 
be defeated, that will never be overthrown, that will never be destroyed. Isaiah chapter 9 says, of the increase of his government, there will be no end of the Savior. God has given a king in Israel, in the history of Israel, who says, through you, I will establish an eternal king. And if you have an eternal king, you have an eternal kingdom. And so you have Jesus coming and preaching the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is our proof. And we have in John chapter 7, there's this debate going on. Is he from David? Is he David's son? I thought David's, I thought you had to be born in the city of David to be the king, but he was born in Bethlehem and but he was raised in Galilee. I mean, who is this guy? And they were confused about the Messiah because they were looking for a son of David. Now, incidentally, we have um, Joseph and Mary, both descendants from the tribe of Judah and um, of, the, of the royal line, um, anticipating Christ. And so God delivers his promise. He delivers his promise not only to Abraham to bless all the nations through his family, but he delivers on his promise to David to send a king who will sit on the throne forever. And so from this king David who died, and we're going to learn about this next week, he died, but there was a, there was a king who would sit on the throne forever, and there's an awaited promise that finally comes, and he's a savior. He's a king, but he's identified primarily as a savior. Now, why savior? Why don't you just say, this is your king? Now, Jesus made that point known to Pilate. Are you, Pilate says, are you a king? And Jesus says, you say that I'm a king. And Jesus identifies that he has a kingdom. So he indirectly admits to and claims his kingship. But what did Christ identify first as? A savior. Why a savior? Look at the mess. An unworthy people unable to follow him, unable to be obedient, unable to follow and obey and become righteous, unable to become God's people. They're a mess. They're a mess. And so God fulfills his promise in a king, but he says, first, you need a savior. First, you need somebody to take away not only the sins that you commit, but the sin of Adam, the sin of rejection of God. Adam committed the same sin that Israel committed when they rejected the judges and Samuel. We want to be gods for ourselves. We don't want God as our king. We want to be king. And so we need a king for sure. But first we need to deal with the issue that we all want to be our own kings. Because no matter who we get as king, if, if that issue is not solved, he'll be rejected too. And so what does God do in Christ first? He saves us from sin. He saves us from the sin of rebellion. He saves us from the sin of depravity, the inability to choose him and accept him and obey him and follow him. God saves us from that first. And then Jesus rises from the dead and he goes to his throne. For now he will sit and he will reign a people who will obey him. Now he has a kingdom that's eternal because nobody can snatch us from the hand of Christ. So even the worship of God's people, your comfort is in the fact that you are a promise kept to Jesus, that the throne would never last. Because if the people rebel from the kingdom, that's a kingdom fallen. But the, but the beautiful thing is that we will not rebel against Christ because we are a promise to Jesus that his throne will endure forever. So we have Jesus come to save us from our sin and then to establish a kingdom that will never end. And you are part of that. You are a part of God's promise kept to our forefathers, to David, to Jesus himself. 
There's a verse in the New Testament that says, when we are faithless, he remains faithful, for God cannot deny himself. God's faithfulness to himself and to his own glory is, is why you have assurance of your salvation. Because God is doing work that is greater than you or your daily sins. And your salvation is secure despite your doubts and, and, and frustrations and insecurities and failures. Your salvation is secure, not because you reached out and said, God, I need you. You did, but that's not why. It's because God chose you and he chose to save you in the presence of the world so that the world would see that God is a good savior. And you know what? He's not going to abandon you because his name will not be profaned. That's why his church will never be destroyed. Because he'll never let the world sit over, over atop the church and say, you were wrong all along. We told you. We told you God would abandon you. We told you this was all a fairy tale. God will never let that happen. That's why the church is indestructible. That's why Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church because the name of God will not be profaned. Isn't that encouraging? Your salvation is secure because God is faithful to God. And we are part of the equation. We are part of the gift, the promise kept to our forefathers and to Jesus Christ. So I may have already answered this, but how is this comforting? And I'm closing this. Three statements. How is this comforting? The answer, and then three statements. The answer is because it, it rightly places God at the center of salvation and not you. That's what's comforting. Because God is a rock that does not move. We are like a, a breath. We're like a vapor that passes away. But God is an eternal rock. And so with God at the center of salvation, we have total assurance. Here's your three statements. In our ignorance, in other words, we weren't looking. In our ignorance, God chose us. In our depravity, God saved us. In our faithlessness, God established us. These are all true for the believer. Now, we don't have a nation. We don't have borders that say, this is, this is how far my nation goes, excuse me, or the church goes, or any of that. God has established us in Christ. Again, read, um, is it First Peter? God has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, um, he has given us every blessing in the spiritual places. And God has established his church. We are secure whether we're living in a cardboard box or in the Taj Mahal. We are secure whether we have breadcrumbs to eat or filet mignon. We don't look at our circumstances to acknowledge security. We look at the spiritual realities that God has accomplished in Christ. So let me repeat those. In our ignorance, God chose us. In our depravity, God saved us. And in our faithlessness, God established us and remains with us. You know that? He's with us when we gather to worship. He's in our presence. He walks in our midst, Jesus Christ. In his spirit, he is among us. Your salvation did not begin because of anything good that you did or might ever do. And God is faithful because of his own goodness, not because of our performance. Even our good works, Ephesians chapter 2 says, they are given by God for us to do. Even our own works are not our own doing. See how good the new covenant is? We're not just given a law that says, you know, if you obey this, you will live. We're given the law and God says, I will cause you to obey it. I will give you good works to do in accordance with my word. And all of history bears this out. And all of history tells the story that God is at the center and the outsides and the top and the bottom of salvation all the way through. He does the whole thing. He does the whole thing. I just want to read to you Psalm 89 as a, as a, as a call to praise before we sing our final song. 
Psalm 89, starting at verse 5. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be, fe- to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours and the earth is also yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon, joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm, strong as your hand, high your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face.